So, I mean, everything on this planet is a recycling system. You know, things grow up, plants, animals, they die, they go back into the soil. The microbial system consumes them and makes all of that nutrients that were tied up in those bodies of either plants or animals available to a new cycle of plant and animal life. And that requires moisture, temperature, and, uh, and, and a robust microbial community. And that exists, uh, you know, a few inches under the soil, but it doesn't exist on the top of a so on the surface in a dry environment. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Tom Willie, a longtime California vegetable farmer and participant in the no-till and low-till row crop trials that we've been following in California. We're starting today's episode with a quick replay of Tom and Dave's exchange at the end of last week's episode. The conversation that they're having here is a bit of a disagreement over the best kind of agriculture for the climate. Tom feels that herbicides can be used to help a farmer get to no-till, which for him is the gold standard. I see it differently. I feel that growing your own fertility is the gold standard. And if tillage through the incorporation of cover crops helps you get there, that that's better than herbicides to get to no-till. But the goal here is to listen thoughtfully, reach out with any questions or comments either through our website or by finding the video version of this episode on our YouTube channel. Okay, let's dive in. I'm not saying we can't do everything, have high, high productive agriculture with strictly biological systems, but we don't know enough about biological systems yet. We don't know how to cooperate them with, we'll cooperate with them as well as we might be able to. There's vast frontiers in that to be discovered and learned to, to you know, kindly manipulate with, but we're not there yet. So. Um, to me, really, the future agriculture might be uh, combining the best of organic and the best of conventional systems. If we're, you know, going to feed 8 billion people and not ask half of them to go with Bezos off to Mars or something, because there's a lot of demand, you know, we got climate change going on right now. I mean, we are up against some challenges in the human species that, well, we haven't seen for 10,000 years, I suspect. So I... We organic people, we got a piece of the solution. We don't have the whole solution. Nobody has the whole solution. I, I, I agree with that, Tom. I do believe that actually organic works, and I believe that it works as a complete system, and it started there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when Howard was in India, they weren't using Haberbosch to feed those cattle. I think that we know, you know, I know, fantastic livestock farmers who are doing it without any Haberbosch you know, input nitrogen, you know, Francis Tiki or Glenn Elzinga, or uh, there are many, many of them. And, uh, you know, regenerative agriculture at its best is just organic agriculture at its best. That's true. I, and, I totally and, agree. You know, it does work. And then the problem for me isn't, isn't biological. The problem is economic and social, yeah. that we have a 
economic system that's always going to reward the lowest possible cost of production. And we know to do that, yes, Haber-Bosch will give you a cheaper product at a, at, a, at a price, at a price to the ecosystem. Paying workers below living wage gives you a cheaper product at a price to the social system. So we have one uh, dedicated organic researcher in all of U USDA Agriculture Research, uh, Research Service. He's right here in the Salinas Valley, um, Eric Brennan. I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he would be valuable to interview. You know, he's of the opinion that uh, farmers, organic farmers use way too much compost and wind up whacking out their balance, uh, applying way too much phosphorus because a lot of times the composts are of a manure based and uh, in, in, in get to try to get enough nitrogen in their systems. And so he's saying we'd be a lot better off to use less compost, just get the biological stimulation and the carbon out of the compost and use very small judicious amounts of uh, synthetic nitrogen, Haber-Bosch nitrogen, that we'd have a much better agronomic system or a much safer agronomic system. We wouldn't be polluting our systems with too much phosphorus. Um, I think those arguments are, we, we need to consider those sure. um, rationally. I don't think everything in the practice of organic as it is written in law is agronomically rational. You know, it is part of the agricultural marketing service. Okay. It's, it's a, organic is a marketing tool. It was a, it was a movement long before the AMS I, I know that. touched it. I know that, but it you is know, a movement around the world. Yeah. Two million farmers I, are I, organic. I, you know, I was an organic farmer. I know. For, I know. But I just want to be honest and open about it. I do know, too. What our shortcomings are and what our strengths are, yeah. you know, and um, we don't, none of us have the entire solution. Let me ask you a harder question then. Do you think that perhaps you made a mistake being organic and that you should have blended used less compost, but used a little more chemical fertilizer? No, because I probably would have never survived economically had I not embraced organic and been able to use the organic seal and the organic label. Yes. That was really at the scale of farming that we were willing to do um, of 75 acres or fewer. That's the only way we could have made a living. Uh, let me, let me so make I, it not, hypothetical. I'm not, let not, me make it. Uh, not unhappy that we did that, but... Let me make it a hypothetical question. Sure. Just... Let's say that you could have made a living. Do you think that's a better way of farming in retrospect? You go, you know what? We're using too much compost. We should have used less just as a biological stimulant and then used some chemical fertilizer if the market was there. I, I kind of do now, you know, not just thinking of myself, but thinking of, you know, the whole food system of our country or the planet. Um, I think that may be a better way forward because on the other hand, we were growing, okay, so in order to grow uh, high production, high quality vegetables, we were using 10 tons of compost to the acre per crop, okay? So we were not double cropping our farm, but on the average cropping, crop and a half on our farm on an annual basis. So we were applying 10, 15 tons of compost to the acre per year, okay? If everybody goes organic all of a sudden, where in the holy heck are we going to get the billions of tons of compost that we would need to support that kind of agriculture? Um, when you scale this thing up to the entire food system, 
of our country or the planet, the resources that we use in organic, like compost, like fish emulsion fertilizer, um, some of these other things that are animal-based products, we're not going to have enough of them to operate organic as we operate it today. And so I think we have to think beyond those kind of constraints and what, what blend. Uh, that's why I think we need to blend some of the best of conventional and the best of organic. Um, going forward, you know, maybe yeah. I'm a heretic, but uh, well, you are. But this is great. We're having a good conversation. Yeah. W one 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 response I would have is that yeah, we wouldn't have enough manure if all the manure is on some giant CAFO a gazillion miles from here, which is the case. That that the manure is so concentrated, it's a terrible pollution problem around the CAFOs. But if the farms were smaller so that you had a dairy farm or, or a beef farm and it, it was surrounded by, by neighbors who wanted that manure, I think that there is enough manure. I think the problem uh, is where I grew up- There in might be, but uh, you know, a whole bunch of the uh, modern people hate cows and they think ruminants are destroying the planet. You know, they're creating all the methane, you know. But I do think you know, the, the separation of animal agriculture and plant agriculture into even great you know, distances was a big mistake. Plants and animals are part of the same system. One of the things that uh, the original regenerative people in the Midwest figured out was that the reason that their soils were so inherently fertile is because bison, you know, by the millions had been grazing on those lands for eons and had put all that fertility, all that organic matter in by by you know consuming the the grass and, and all that stuff it's so animals belong on the land and uh, i i believe in the reintegration of that we didn't get there on our own farming system because i knew absolutely zippo about farming of any kind i was able to figure out how to be a good vegetable farmer over the 30 40 years that i farmed but my wife was constantly challenging me to bring animals into our system I was afraid to do it because I just my knowledge base wasn't there, yeah. and uh, but but yes, reintegrating animals and plant culture on farms is absolutely where we need to go. Yeah, yeah. and you might and that is probably would be the best opportunity that we have of creating closed systems that would be self perpetuating that would not need a lot of outside inputs. Um, that would be the direction we'd have to go in. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I would consider that to be the ideal. Okay, uh, I know that you got a busy day. I have a, another area I want to go to. I know you've been working with Phil Foster on his minimum till experiments. I, I, Phil tells me I shouldn't call it no-till anymore because he, he felt no-till wasn't viable at all. But let, let me ask you what, what you've I'm learned. I'm not just working with Phil. I'm working with Full Belly and with yeah. Scott Park. It's a whole consortium of of farms and universities. We've got the University of California, Davis, and uh, Jeff Mitchell working with us, and also the Regenerative Ag Institute at Chico State with Cindy Daly working with right. us. So it's a whole collaboration. I'm not just working with Phil, but. Well, tell since, me what you learned. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, in a, in, a, in a very, very few words, I would say that we've learned that uh, all of our efforts have been a great advertisement for tillage so far. <laughs> my friend Jeff Mitchell's not going to like me saying that. But uh, we've had a very difficult time uh, backing off of tillage to a very large extent. As Phil says, we don't call it no-till because we haven't been able to, to really operate these systems without doing a strip till, you know. So we'll, we'll till a very narrow strip, say on an 80-inch bed in a tomato crop, for instance, we'll till a 10-inch wide strip on, a, on an 80-inch bed in order to either direct seed or transplant a tomato plant into. Um, that's, as that's as close to no-till as we've gotten. But let me just clarify for people that we're talking about reduced or no-till in organic vegetable production. In and, organic and vegetable production. In, yes, so uh -huh. that means no herbicides. And, no, uh, no herbicides. Well, I know, but that is a, a, a given in most no-till. Herbicides are- Yeah, so are we're trying to create uh, systems, successful systems in of no-till or vastly reduced till organic vegetable production or cow on at scale because we have quite a number of small five acre or less farms. Probably uh, one of the best examples would be the singing frog farm up in Sebastopol that have learned to do no-till very successfully, but on a very small scale. Yes. Um, that's a whole different world. Yes. And what we're working with are farms that are anywhere from 200 to 2000 acres of scale that are mechanized. So to do no-till, organic, certified organic production systems on those is a big uphill climb and a ask. So we've made, you know, we've learned a significant amount. We're in our fourth year of collaboration right now. Um, really the only system that we have come up with that can provide the same yields as a full tillage system is growing a cover crop, you know, maybe as much as 10,000 pounds of dry matter per acre, multi-species, mowing that down, very fine scale on top of an 80-inch bed, and uh, applying your compost over the top of that. And then you've got to have drip irrigation on the surface right under that, and then you cover the whole thing with a plastic mulch, and you can plant your crop through that, and you can get the same kind of yields as you do uh, in a full tillage system. Uh, that's really all of when, you know, we're in a semi-arid climate out here in the West. So things don't work the same as they do in a high rainfall area, rain-fed agriculture in the Midwest or on the East Coast. And so when you grow a cover crop and you just roll it down and mow it or kill it and leave it on the surface, put your compost on the surface and then try to grow a crop through there with drip irrigation, which is what we pretty much all have to use out here now because of the scarcity of water, it doesn't work because that material just sits inert and dry on the surface and doesn't start to really break down very much until the next winter when hopefully you get rainfall. And so the, the, the crop that you're trying to grow through that system is it's short of nutrients. We're not mineralizing the nutrients out of those inputs without tilling them under six inches and keeping them moist and warm all the time and in, in, 
in association with the microbes that can that can consume them and release the fertility for the crop. So, so just just to kind of clarify for somebody who's not a farmer who's listening to this, if you take a if you grow a green manure crop and you till it in, those that plant matter as it's breaking down is providing a a, a feast for microbes, yep. and it's and those microbes are providing. Uh, a wonderful balance of nutrients to the plants that are growing. Yeah. And so it's that incorporating it into the soil that that sure. gives you the benefit for the next crop. I Just because yeah. people won't understand so, this. So, I mean, everything on this planet is a recycling system. You know, things grow up, plants, animals, they die, they go back into the soil. The microbial system consumes them and makes all of that nutrients that were tied up in those bodies of either plants or animals available to a new cycle of plant and animal life. And that requires moisture, temperature, and, uh, and, and a robust microbial community. And that exists, uh, you know, a few inches under the soil, but it doesn't exist on the top of a, so on the surface in a dry environment. Right. If you got rainfall, you get rain every couple times a week in the Midwest, and you do that, well, then that does happen relatively well on the surface because it's humid and moist all the time, and the rainfall is taking those nutrients that are being released into the root zone of, the, of your growing crop. But that doesn't happen out here because in California, the growing season is very dry. It doesn't rain, so we provide irrigation. But unless you're doing overhead irrigation with sprinklers, we've had some uh, success with that, but not all crops are adaptable to overhead irrigation all the way through. Uh, so we're, we're inching along. I, I mean, I'm, I, I think what the results we're getting from the plastic mulch system are awesome, but everybody hates plastic now. I mean, plastic is the, the latest plague of the planet and for good reasons. And so... We are playing around with biodegradable plastic now to see how that will work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not uh, sure it really degrades. It just breaks into very little bits. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of opinions about it. Well, that. yeah, well, I, I don't think that one's an opinion. You get a lot of microplastic in your soil then. Well, it depends upon what these plastics are made of. They're completely made out of plant material. Sure, um, sure, yes. You know, if they're truly biodegradable products and made from plant materials, then they should be benign. No, no, if it's completely plant, plant material. But we're not tilling anything in anyhow. We're trying not to till, right? So we're not right. going to till that plastic in. We're going to try to remove it and put it through a composting system. So yeah. That's, yeah. that's what our hope is. But th these are all just experimental things. So there's a lot of work going on. And uh, I was out at Phil Foster's a couple of days ago, and he showed me one trial and a number of trials that were very interesting. And he, he had his strip till no-till, minimal till system. We can't call it no-till. And and then next to it, he had the bed where he had fully incorporated the the green manure. Right. And those beds always had nicer plants growing on them. There was a visual difference. There was there? a visual difference. Yeah. yeah. And he said there, so far, has been a yield difference. Now, he yeah. had has not given up. He said, we've only been doing this for four years. No, Phil is very persistent. Yeah. And he's willing to do a significant amount of risk to try to make these systems work and, and yeah. uh, 
Uh, I know I, that I really tip my hat to Phil. Yeah, he's a pioneer. He's pushing the edges. That's right. Uh, but there have been yield costs, and you know, if you reduce your yields ten to twenty percent in a vegetable system with all the high labor inputs we have and everything, that can be all your profit. That's right. You know, and so you can't. We really can't afford to sacrifice that ten or twenty percent yield unless somebody wants to pay us a god awful price for the product, which right. is not happening. So we yes. got to try to figure it out. So. And I, it's great I would, having a collaboration yeah. uh, versus individuals. We all started out as individuals trying to do these things, and the results were so disappointing that we all kind of quit doing it on our own. So we dis decided we'd create this collaboration back in 2018 and that we could get farther, faster as a, a learning community than as individuals. And so it's yeah. been really fun uh, and gratifying to work with uh, such a great group of farmers and university research people. Yeah, and I'd call out that I, I happen to know that this particular group of farmers pays quite high wages to their farm workers and, and actually they, offers they, benefits. All and of them have really good labor practices. Really good labor practices. So this is a case where they're not creating a profit on the backs of the workers. The workers are doing the work, but but they're taking, you know, the, yeah. these are professions for so the people. So you've got to have high production, high quality, high pack out in order to support treating workers well. Yeah. And so if we can't pull that off or highly it, reduced till systems, then I don't know. Or an economic system in the marketing end that actually acknowledges and, and rewards the producers who are doing that. Um, you know, in Europe, that's, there's a, a fairly strong market reward for um, labor justice, you know, for, for farms that are, are paying a higher wage to workers and better benefits. That's kind of just starting here. Just starting, yeah, I know. So, so it's, at the moment, the farms that are doing that are doing it, they have to find a way to survive and do that without getting a price premium. So really last week I had an awesome experience for which I was very grateful. I went to, I was in Colorado and uh, we welcomed a, a, a training team from the Coalition of Amokali Workers out of Florida uh, to do the worker training on the first two farms in Colorado where they're intending to expand their efforts. Coalition for Amokali Workers has organized um, labor and improved labor conditions on, in the Florida tomato industry, which was notoriously um, exploitative of workers. And they did so by getting, triangulating the farmers, the workers, and the marketplace to all decide that we're going to lift up this labor business together. And so they've got outfits like Kroger, um, Whole Foods, Burger King, uh, paying premiums for the tomatoes that they buy off of the uh, farms that have collaborated with Coalition for Mokley Workers in uh, Florida to support uh, better conditions and better wages and bonuses for the workers there. So they're, they're, we, we're, we started that last week in Colorado on a couple of farms, and I was very honored to be part of that. So I, I think that possibly the real food... Um, campaign can maybe take a playbook out of uh, what Coalition for Mokley Workers has done in getting the marketplace support for their efforts and 
think that's the direction we, we need to go. And, and I, it's worth calling out that the, the organized workers spent years getting the corporate support. Oh they, they, weren't, they weren't directly going to the shoppers. They were going to the corporations yeah. and saying, look, we don't need 20 cents more a pound. We need one, one cent a pound, a pound more tomatoes. from you, but with the commitment between you and the grower that that one penny will go to the workers. Exactly. And, and that was a game changer for the lives of those people. And it, very important and a, a, brilliant, a brilliant strategy for how you create change. So I, I just... And it only took them about 15 years to pull that off. That's right. They, you know, those were some dedicated people yeah. who went to meeting after meeting at these corporations yeah, and, and marched in the streets marched and, and protested. whatever the heck they had to do. To... And, and those corporations finally agreed to one cent premium and they had to get the growers to agree that that one cent would go on to the workers. Exactly. But yeah. I thought it was Pollyannish to begin with, but the more I've learned about it, I'm really uh, awesomely respectful of what they've pulled off, and I think it's a model. For yeah, I, I agree. Fantastic. So um, I know we're running out of time, but before we say goodbye, uh, talking about the reduced tillage, it sounds like there are good lessons, regardless of whether the particular model of a strip till works in, in California in a dry climate. There are, even so, the growers are learning how to reduce tillage. Yes. With, and, and still get the yields. Well, we're, we're learning a little bit about how to do that. I know, yeah. I know yeah. to go all the way to the strip till that, that we're not there yet. Yeah. But just by thinking about, well, would it be better... I, I wanted to call out one thing. I, I don't know if you know Emily Oakley. Um, I do know Emily Oakley. Yeah, she's, I, I admire them very she, much. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Um, Outside of Tulsa. Yeah, and, and of course she was one of the founders of the Real Organic Project. But her, her farm is exceptional in that they pretty much do it with green manure. They don't use any animal yeah, manure I've at all. Yeah, I've learned that over the last several years. Right. Yeah. They, they put in a little bit of alfalfa meal. Emily's always very... Uh, you know, she, she's a little bit shy about it. She says, well, it's not that we don't bring in any amendments, but they don't bring in any animal products. Right. And they... So that means they're not really bringing in any Haber-Bosch nitrogen. Exactly. Okay. And, and their organic, organic matter builds. Yeah. And their crops are beautiful. Yeah. And so that's another model mm -hmm. of a sustainable organic system, they need enough land to be able to... Right, they'll, they'll grow fertility on, one, on certain acres for a year, and then they'll farm their vegetables on another acreage yeah. for a year that they had grown the fertility on the year before. Yeah, if you have enough uh, relatively inexpensive land to operate that way, that's a possibility. Problem in this neighborhood on the Central Coast, to rent an acre of land for high production vegetables is somewhere between two and $3,000 per year to rent an acre. So uh, sitting a piece of land out for a year to grow fertility is a pretty hard sell in this area when you've got to pay those kind of land rents. Yes, I know. It's the reason why this area might not be this, the answer to our problems. But, but, you know, I just think it's important to look at that model and go, well, you can do this and you can do it 
with tillage, mm -hmm. yeah. without bringing in compost or manure, mm -hmm. and, and have excellent results, and it can be financially viable. I don't know a whole lot of the detail about that system, but I'm, I'd love to learn a lot more about what, what they're doing and how they're doing it. You I, bet. But I'm, um, I'm admiring it. We'll be interviewing Emily for this symposium, so she'll be part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, just to talk about that that part of their farm, it's it's right. it's great. And you know, we at our first board meeting, uh, David Bronner flew across the country to come and attend it, and uh, and he was proposing that Rock and Real Organic join forces at that moment. And Emily was actually. Uh, very strong in saying, no, I don't believe in your standards, which were no-till. Now they've changed their standards since then because most farmers agreed with Emily and so nobody signed up. But, but you know, at that point they were really, really very strong no-till. And Emily said, I believe in tillage. And you look at my system and we are, we have great soil health and we're building the organic matter. Yeah. And we're doing all of that without inputs of, of you know, no animal, compost being brought in so well I'll, I'll tell you in the in the case of the three collaborative collaborating farmers in our reduced till experimental efforts um certainly full belly and uh phil foster uh by the use of you know that the, and both both they and scott park have been managing their land uh organically for over 30 years all of all, all three of them um, using cover cropping and compost inputs and tillage. Um, but at least on Phil Foster and, uh, Full Belly's farms, you know, they're, they're, they've got like 5% organic matter in some of their better fields. You Amazing. Know, which is easily twice the amount of organic matter that adjacent land that was not using those practices over that period of time would have. So they've easily doubled their organic matter content under full tillage systems. Okay. Yes. Scott Park is, says that he, you know, he, his, his organic matter content is closer to two and a half, three percent. Um, it's higher than his neighbors, but not, not double. Um, so, you know, maybe tillage is not such a great sin that, that we think it is. You know, I mean, I remember, Wes Jackson from the Land Institute. He's given a couple of keynotes at EcoFarm over the years, um, but uh, you know he's trying to change the entire grain system in the Midwest from an annual tillage uh, system to a permanent um, no-till multi-species. <laughs> Is, is, is very ambitious, but anyhow, <laughs> he did tell us that you know if you if you're in in places where the ground is very flat and you don't have a, a huge uh, danger of erosion, you know um, that you know tillage is probably not as big a problem as it is in the Midwest, yeah, where half of the soil is washed down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico over the last century. Um, However, we do know, see, one of the, that we set out to do two things on, on our, our collaborative farmers in the no-till project or the reduced till project, set out to do th two things. We wanted to increase our organic matter, even though we had very high organic matter for, you know, compared to our neighbors. And we wanted to increase the fungal aspect of our um, microbiological systems in the soil. You know, tillage 
has a tendency to damage and destroy uh, fungi in the soil, which are kind of like, their, their mycelium is kind of like spaghetti, okay? And so every time you go in there and till, you're chopping those guys up. The bacteria don't mind because they're just individual cells, you know? Um, so your, your, your microbial systems have a tendency to get very um, bacterially dominated and fungally weak. We know there's a lot of value in having, uh, you know, fungal allies and uh, in the soil. And so we wanted to both increase our organic matter and we wanted to both and, and to also increase the fungal to bacterial ratio in our soils. So that's one of the main drivers of why we began this project and the main reasons for reducing tillage or eliminating if possible. But um, there's trade-offs in everything, you know. And, and uh, the folks from Chico State and, and Davis are measuring the, the fungi in the soil and seeing the difference between tillage and no-till. We're attempting to do that, yeah. Right. Those, those, those methods of measurement can be challenging and expensive and not always, you know, uh, conclusive, but we're, we're yeah. attempting. Yeah, I, I, I guess my question is you made a bold statement just now and is that based on research or is that based on a theory that the no, tillage... No, it's based on a lot of research, not just on our farms. I right. Mean, that, so there's that, a lot that of kind research. kind of research is going on everywhere all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that if, you, if you till a piece of ground, you won't eliminate the fungal population, no, but you'll you set it back. No, you don't eliminate it, but you're setting it back. You yeah. Know? It's kind of like... Uh, you know, the three little pigs who blow the house down and then, you're, and then you say, oh, I'm sorry I did that, please rebuild, you know? And it's amazing how well these systems do rebuild and yeah. what good, how good of crops that we can pull out of these high tillage systems. But I think we understand soil biology to a deeper extent now that we know that if we could be less disturbance, could use less disturbance, we would have significant values come out of there. And part of this is the nutrient cycling. So if we want to get away from synthetic fertilizer and inputs, we have got to basically build up these biological systems to an awesome degree. We know now that plants can actually take microbes into their roots. It's a, it's a, it's a phenomenon called micro, um, macrophagy, uh, rhizophagy, I'm sorry. And, and they can actually deconstruct the, the microbe, the bacteria inside the root and extract nutrient from the microbe and send it back out into the system. Um, I mean, there's so much that we don't understand. The life of soil under our feet is as complex as the stars in the heavens. And it's right there, but we can't see it. And we, we can now characterize it because we can sequence DNA we know that there's, you know, as many as from 10,000 to a million unique species of bacteria in our soils and thousands of species of fungi in our soils. And they're almost overwhelmingly all beneficial, but we don't know what their roles are. We never named them. We don't know what they do or what, or what they can do. And... So we're in, just in the process of discovery of that. It's so new that we just don't have a handle on it. It'll be many generations of human existence if we persist to understand even half of it. So, but it's a, it's a new frontier. And if we can continue to 
collaborate and cooperate with that, we might be able to establish a permanent agriculture. Um, that, that's what's very exciting. And that's what was really very exciting about my whole organic career once I switched from conventional or chemical agriculture, organic agriculture. It's learning about how the world works. It's learning about biological systems and it's very intellectually stimulating and it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot more exciting than, uh, than just what material can I use to <laughs> stimulate my plant and what, mat what material can I use to kill this pest that's bothering my plant. You know, it's just, it's just a whole fascinating world of intellectual discovery. Um, and it's been really a privilege to be part of that. For, uh, Thank you. For All right. Well, Tom Willie, it's been a privilege to talk with you, uh, honestly. Um, obviously, we could keep talking for days here, uh, but I know you got an appointment. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, you're very welcome, Dave. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and you're sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org, or on our YouTube channel. Join us next week when our guest will be nutrition icon, author, and professor, Joan Gussow. <laughs>